See, I've never spoken here before. And so I've got to adjust things. But um, in all seriousness, I have not spoken here before. So in case you um, are new to Revolution or haven't been to Revolution in a while, uh, my name is Paul. I've been coming here for about eight years. Uh, I've been on the preaching team for a couple of years, and I actually spoke uh, a couple years ago back when Kenny was recovering from COVID during the year that will not be named. And so whenever he's on vacation or at seminary like he was this past week, I'll come and fill in for him. Uh, this week was an interesting week. Um, I spent Wednesday night lying on the floor of my office wondering what I had gotten myself into with today's message because today we're looking at Mark chapter 11. And Mark chapter 11 could be a really easy sermon if I had just focused on Palm Sunday. I mean, Palm Sunday might be the least controversial day of Holy Week. So I do a little Palm Sunday and October message. I let Kenny do all the hard stuff next week and everything's fine. Stupidly, I decided we're actually going to do a message about two of the most controversial events in Jesus' earthly ministry. So forget the Palm Sunday in October. We're doing that instead. And these events are controversial because they're hard to understand. They contradict what we believe is Jesus' nature. And they're hard to apply in our own lives. But these events are also controversial because they portray Jesus as the king he is going to be. And that's the premise Kenny set up last week. When we started this, this trip through Mark earlier in the year, we talked about um, if Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, that Mark claims him to be in the very first sentence of his gospel. In this last section of Mark, we're asking ourselves, what kind of king will Jesus be? And today, we find out that Jesus will be a king of judgment, a king of judgment. And to put this in 2022 terms that I, I personally despise, but I think actually communicates things very clearly here. When we think about Jesus or God being a king of judgment, that idea is cringe. That idea is cringe. Even though judgment is an essential part of justice, a word we tend to like, we wrestle with Jesus being a king of judgment. Maybe it's because we wonder if Jesus will be a fair judge or if he's going to eager, eagerly punish us for the slightest of crimes. But before we get into the hard stuff, let's touch ever so briefly on the easy stuff, the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem, the city of David, in reference, of course, to Israel's greatest king. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey that has never been ridden before. And animals that had never been ridden before or never used for work were often used in the Old Testament for sacred purposes. And the image here of Jesus riding on a donkey ties back to the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 9 which speaks of a king on a donkey. And even though Mark doesn't directly quote this passage, the illusion is nearly impossible to ignore. Mark does quote a different Old Testament passage, Psalm 118, which says in part, Hosanna, O Lord, save us. 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, there's a commentary, it's called the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And it describes this psalm as a possible royal song of thanksgiving for military victory. So as Jesus approached the city of David, on a donkey never ridden, with shouts of Hosanna, with Passover approaching, it would be easy to think as, as you were experiencing this, that maybe Jesus was about to achieve a great victory to free Israel from its oppressors, that Jesus was declaring himself a king of liberation. After his arrival in Jerusalem, Jesus made his way to the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. Okay, so far, so good. Then Jesus looked around the temple area, and this is where the story starts to get a little off script. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says that Jesus is, quote, examining the institution, this is in reference to the temple, to see whether it was fulfilling its divinely appointed mission. The examination was in preparation for the prophetic act of cleansing. All right, so before I continue, uh, we need to touch on something else from earlier in the year, back when Kenny introduced us to Mark. Uh, Kenny used this fancy word, which he is apt to do, uh, called intercalation, which is also called sandwich construction. This means one narrative that is bracketed by two halves of another narrative. And in Mark chapter 11, there's an intercalation to wrap these two stories, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple around a central teaching. And if we can get it up on the screen, perhaps, we can see what this intercalation looks like in Mark chapter 11. Is there a slide before this one? If there's not, it's okay. Oh, yep, perfect, that's it. Okay, so this is how the intercalation works in Mark 11. And I'm trying to move here so everyone can see this. So basically, if you look through these verses, verse 11, already late, that's a reference to evening. Verse 12, the next day, reference to morning. Verse 19, when evening came, reference to evening. Verse 20, in the morning. So night, day, night, day. And so that's how Mark 11 is being framed. And this is how these two stories are kind of being joined together. And so in, in one of the best commentaries on Mark, R.T. France, he goes into details about this. The effect of the intercalation is to tie the two narrative scenes of the temple and the fig tree closely together by means of evening and morning journeys linking the two, enabling the reader to see the sequence as a connected whole and thus reinforcing the effect already achieved by the interweaving of the two stories. So in other words, it may not seem like it, but the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree are talking about the same thing. Okay, now we're on to the hard part. The cursing of the fig tree is described by the expositor's commentary as, quote, one of the most difficult stories in the Gospels. It is not found in Luke. Many modern commentators would just as soon not have it here at all. And the commentary quotes a, a, a Bible scholar who says, it is a tale of miraculous power 
wasted in the service of ill temper. In other words, Jesus kills a tree because he was hungry and having a hissy fit. If you're a parent or a teacher, you understand what this means, I think. But here's the thing. Writing stuff down was really hard back in the day. Mark wasn't able to take out his smartphone and record notes. He and the Holy Spirit overseeing this unique process of creating scripture obviously thought the fig tree story was important. And if the Bible is in fact this, this miraculous and hard to understand collaboration between man and God, obviously Jesus had a reason for acting out this parable, even if it meant a tree had to die. The cursing of the fig tree in Mark 11 starts with verse 12, but to get the full effect of the intercalation we're talking about, let's start with verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And after looking around at everything, he went out to Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. Now the next day, as they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. All right, so Jesus and his disciples were staying in Bethany. This is a town about uh, an hour walk from Jerusalem, maybe 45 minutes. Also, as we touched on before, Jesus is described as looking around at everything in the temple. So when he cleanses the temple, we can assume this wasn't an impulsive act. Jesus was planning out what he was going to do. Let's go back to verse 13. After noticing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to see if he could find any fruit on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So here's Mark saying it. There, there should be no actual figs on this tree. It's springtime. Figs don't come until summer. And this is why Jesus' next act can be so confusing. Jesus spoke to the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus wanted his disciples to hear him curse the fig tree. He wanted his disciples to hear him perform a miracle of destruction. His one miracle of destruction, unless you consider him driving out the demons into pigs in Mark chapter 5. But why would Jesus do this? Why would he kill a tree to make a point? Let's go back to the expositor's commentary on Mark. The best explanation is to see the miracle as an acted out parable. Jesus' hunger provides the occasion for his use of the fig tree as a teaching device. The tree is fully leafed out, and in such a state, one would normally expect to find fruit. This symbolizes the hypocrisy and sham of the nation of Israel, which made her ripe for the judgment of God. The best commentary on this story of Jesus cursing the fig tree is to be found in the narrative which these verses inframe. So let's go to that narrative now in Mark 11. Then they came to Jerusalem. Jesus entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. He turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. The temple in Jerusalem is this, at the time of Jesus, 
was this gigantic complex. And it was divided up into certain areas and people could go into certain places and there were certain places where certain people couldn't go. So to, to clear that up, um, according to the Cultural Background Study Bible, if Gentiles or non-Jews went beyond the area called the Court of the Gentiles, they could be killed. There were actually signs warning Gentiles, do not go beyond this area. It is only for Jews. And the Court of the Gentiles seems to be the area in which Jesus cleared out the buyers and sellers. Here's the Holman New Testament commentary. With the conversion of the court of the Gentiles into a bazaar, with all its noise and commotion and stench, they were deprived of the only place in the temple where they could worship. By clearing out the traitors, Jesus literally and symbolically provided a place for Gentiles in the temple of God. Jesus provided a place for Gentiles in the temple of God. And Jesus wasn't just clearing out the sellers who were possibly ripping people off. He was clearing out the buyers who needed animals for sacrifices, sacrifices that were necessary for temple worship. And he blocked those who would use the court of the Gentiles as a shortcut between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Back to Mark 11. Then he began to preach them and said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the experts in the law heard it, and they considered how they could assassinate him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So here's the clue that we have that the temple area is the court of Gentiles. Uh, Jesus cites Isaiah 56, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israel, not just Jews, but all nations, everyone. And then he says the line, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. This is a quote from Jeremiah 7. And the NET Bible puts this den of robbers language into context. Not only were the religious leaders robbing the people financially, but because of this, they had robbed them spiritually by stealing from them the opportunity to come to know God genuinely. So Jesus, the king of judgment, is judging the buyers, the sellers, the people using the court of Gentiles as a shortcut. He was judging the priests who set up this marketplace. He was judging them for robbing, for violently taking away Gentiles' ability to worship God in God's house. Obviously, the powers that, that be at the temple were not happy about this since you know, they, they wanted to assassinate Jesus. And the Greek word translated assassinate is apolemi or destroy fully, which means the priests and experts of the law wanted to destroy Jesus for his cleansing of the temple. Then we go down to verse 17. We read that Jesus was using this cleansing of the temple to teach the people. He wasn't there to make a scene. He wasn't just acting out of impulsive anger. Jesus wanted the people to pay attention and learn something. This house of God, 
the temple in Jerusalem was for everyone. And the people were astonished by this teaching. And this is why the priests and experts wanted to destroy Jesus. They were afraid that the people were coming around to what Jesus had to say. If Jesus was judging temple worship as failing God, maybe people would come around to agree with this idea and then they would, they would reject those overseeing the temple. As Kenny talked about last week, the gospel of Mark was written primarily to Gentiles. So when Jesus speaks of the temple being a house of worship for all people, and his cleansing of it from the business that prevented Gentiles from worshiping there, that's a message that's going to resonate with Mark's audience. And hopefully it resonates with us too, because sometimes we can wonder, do we belong in God's house? And Jesus' answer to you by cleansing the temple is yes, you do have a place, I do have a place. We all have a place in the house of God. So let's summarize this intercalation and what we have seen so far from Jesus, the King of Judgment. This is from, again, the Holman Commentary. The cursing of the fig tree and the expulsion of the merchants from the temple are prophetic actions that symbolize the same thing. The coming judgment on unfaithful Israel by the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Israel like the fig tree, appeared to be thriving. But the appearances were deceiving because Israel and the fig tree were bearing no fruit. The magnificence of the temple masked the corruption and false security associated with it. Just as the fig tree was cursed and withered, so Israel was about to be condemned and decline in importance. Let's get back to Mark. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus said to them, have faith in God. Let's think for a moment about what Jesus' Jewish, Jewish disciples were witnessing in Mark 11. First, they saw Jesus enter Jerusalem in a way that speaks to him being the prophesied Messiah. Then they see him kill a tree and trash the temple. If our interpretation of the fig tree story is accurate, and Jesus is a king of judgment, judging Israel, Jesus' disciples could be in serious despair, despair as they're witnessing these events. The Messiah wasn't supposed to curse the temple and judge Israel for hypocrisy. The Messiah was supposed to free Israel, God's chosen nation, from its oppressors, the most powerful empire in the Western world. But Jesus doesn't leave his disciples or us in fear or despair. He says, have faith in God. Despite the cursing of the fig tree, the cursing of the temple and the judgment of Israel itself continue to trust God. Back to Mark 11. I tell you the truth. If someone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. I tell you the truth is a phrase used to emphasize the importance of what Jesus is saying. 
Uh, the mountain here could be in reference to the Mount of Olives, which was this ridge running about 100 feet above Jerusalem. I don't know if any of you have been to the Federal Hill Park where you get to the edge of it and you can overlook the city of Baltimore. The Mount of Olives was kind of like that in relation to Jerusalem. Uh, the symbol of a mountain here could be used by Jesus to describe an object of great difficulty. And the disciples were certainly confronted with a great difficulty here. Jesus was telling them they are losing their way of life represented by the temple. But despite this difficulty, Jesus says, trust God. God can do the impossible. He can move mountains or even still he can be with us despite his judgment. Back to Mark. For this reason, I tell you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your sins. So the ending of this intercalation seems a little awkward. We're going from the dead fig tree that symbolizes the judgment of Israel to having faith that moves mountains, then prayer, and then forgiveness. But this is the kind of prayer that, this is the kind of passage that demands a lot of contemplation beyond the time we have today. In Mark 10, as Kenny talked about last week, Jesus tells us that all things are possible with God. And in Mark 11, Jesus is hammering home that point with us, that all things are possible with God. So even as Mark presents these hard to take stories, he is reminding us, as Jesus reminded his disciples, God can do anything. And so even though God's dwelling place on earth, the temple would wither like the fig tree, the disciples could still stand the traditional position of prayer and pray to God. And not only that, God would listen and give the disciples what they need. And the, uh, the Tyndale commentary on Mark gives us some sound advice on when we pray. The requests that are answered are not just the first thing that pops into the supplicant's head, but petitions that emerge from a state of meditation. In other words, if you pray for a million dollars right now, God is probably not going to give it to you. Um, if he does, I want 15%. Just putting that out there. Um, but if after deep reflection, you realize you have done wrong and you pray God will forgive you, God will forgive you. And in the midst of this king of judgment, punishing people for a lack of fruit, he reminds his disciples and us that he is a king of forgiveness. The priests making a house of prayer into a den of robbers can be forgiven. The disciples who will shortly betray Jesus can be forgiven. Just trust God and pray. But prayer isn't only about tapping into God's power for our benefit, for our forgiveness. Being a person who is forgiven means being a person who forgives others. And forgiving someone who has hurt us can definitely feel like we're trying to move a mountain inside of us, right? 
But Jesus is pretty clear. If we want to receive forgiveness from God, we have to be willing to give forgiveness to others who hurt us. Every week, Kenny looks over my messages. He makes sure I don't see anything too crazy or too controversial. And he gave me some feedback on the ending. He said, okay, everything's all right so far, but how do we apply this? Like, what do we do with this? And it's a fair point that Kenny brought up. How do we take this and apply this to our lives? And I spent some time Friday and Saturday morning thinking about this, thinking about another story to add, some more words to say. And I decided, okay, let's just do this instead. It's something similar the church has done for a long time called Lectio Divina, but it's like a super light, stripped down, not quite Lectio Divina we're about to do. A couple minutes ago, I mentioned how Jesus' final words to his disciples at the fig tree required a lot of meditation. So let's go ahead and try that for a couple of minutes. Whether you stay seated or stand up, open your eyes, close your eyes, whatever you can do to make yourself comfortable and in the right frame of mind, just be, give it a shot and try to listen to God's word through Mark. I'm going to read Jesus' final words at the fig tree three more times. Then I'm going to shut up for a minute and then Sarah will lead us in communion. So dwell on these words as you hear them. Give it a shot if you want. Let them affect your thinking, your emotions, your desires. Trust God, pray, and then we'll see what happens. So here we go. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too.